when you sell your company, what some people don't really understand is that you kind of let go of a piece of yourself because you've put so much effort and time and love into the company that it's quite an emotional kind of roller coaster. That was Alex McClafferty. He has a wealth of business experience to share with us this week. Not only did he build a successful business within the WordPress space, WP Curve, but he ended up selling it to GoDaddy. That experience, which we'll talk about, showed him that the number of resources for selling your business were scarce. So now he's creating those resources, completely embracing the teach what you know mentality. We'll get into all of that and more, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Ahoy, the easiest way to increase customer engagement on your WordPress site. Install Ahoy, create a message box, configure where to display it, and start seeing conversions come in. You can create messages for cart abandonment, upsells and cross-sells, custom support, and so much more. Ahoy's flexible conditions let you choose exactly where and when you want your message to be displayed. I've recently installed it on my own WooCommerce site, and I've already seen increased engagement. And I know this because of Ahoy's powerful analytics and reporting. You will see ROI within days of installing Ahoy, if not sooner. And that's even more true for listeners of How I Built It you can get an exclusive 20% discount on any plan. Visit useahoy.com slash howibuiltit and use the code howibuiltit at checkout. That's useahoy.com, U-S-E-A-H-O-Y, useahoy.com slash howibuiltit and the discount code howibuiltit. Use those today. Increase your engagement and sales on your WordPress site. Thanks to Ahoy for their support of this show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of How I Built It, the podcast that asks, how did you build that? Today, my guest is Alex McClafferty, the a CEO coach of Productize.co, Productize.co. Uh, Alex, how are you today? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Based on uh, your accent, I'm going to say that it is l- later in the day for you. Maybe it's early in the morning for you now. Huh. You know what? I'm actually in Arizona. so Ah, is, so it's actually it earlier. <laughs> we might be in the same time zone. <laughs> I, I think there is a two or three hour difference depending. I'm on the east coast of the United States. Um, no doubt. That's what I get for assuming. Uh, are you, are, is, is your accent Australian? Are you Australian? Yeah, you got it. You All got right. it. I'm glad you didn't say New Zealand. I, I think at this point I can differentiate between the two because I've gotten in trouble for that before. But yeah, we're, uh, we're a I'm little always, bit precious about that for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I imagine it's like if uh, I'm from New York, if you accused me of having like a like a deep South accent, I probably would take some offense to it. Um, not real offense, of course. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we're not here to talk about accents. We are here to talk about. Uh, building and and selling WP Curve. So WP Curve was a a uh, product or service that you had that you then sold to GoDaddy. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. So why don't we start at the beginning with a, a little bit about who you are and and what you do? 
Yeah, so uh, today um, I'm actually working with a bunch of different entrepreneurs, founders, um, CEOs who are building and scaling their businesses. Um, and the reason that I do that is because when I was going through building, scaling, and then selling my business, is I kind of wished there was someone that was doing what I did. I couldn't really find anyone. I could look for advisors and I could look for blog posts and those kind of things, but I didn't know of anyone that was really boots on the ground uh, at the that could serve the, I guess, the stage and the phase of the company that I was in. So the quick summary for my background is 2013, I co-founded WP Curve with an Australian co-founder. I was based in San Francisco. He was based in Australia. We grew it for three years and then sold it to GoDaddy. Uh, GoDaddy came by way of you know, introducing themselves to us, talking about a partnership, and then that escalated into the talk of an acquisition. Uh, end of 2016, company was acquired, and then later on, probably late 2018, uh, I resigned from GoDaddy and went full time to coach to coach founders and CEOs. So, the way I explain it is, I have the best job in the world. All I do all day is help uh, help those folks like solve their business problems, um, and I get to do it face to face. I get to do it over the phone, and it is a whole ton of fun. That's that's fantastic, and and I like um, I like that what you're doing today is uh, something that you wish you had when you were going through it. That's often uh, how I start a lot of my online courses um, or or even blog posts, educational material. It's stuff I wish existed when I was doing it. Um, so I think that's that's really cool. So uh, you co-founded WP Curve in 2013. Um, for those who don't know, what does what did or does WP Curve do? We did twenty four seven WordPress support. So the premise of the uh, service was basically you had WordPress, you would get frustrated with WordPress trying to change a theme or update a plugin or do some CSS. And we had a team of developers that were on standby that could solve that problem for you. So a very simple monthly subscription model where you would have a headache, have a problem, submit it to our team, we'd turn it around really quickly and then let you know that it was fixed. And so the reason that I was, I guess, interested in that type of business is that I dealt with WordPress, um, you know, months and months before deciding to, to partner up on the business and I realized how frustrating it was. Anyone that knows WordPress knows that it's a bit of a nightmare of a platform to get your head around and you need some level of technical expertise. And so when I had my headache of trying to uh, update an image that was in a, a blog header and then it looks like worse off mm. four hours after me tinkering and tweaking it, I figured there's probably a lot of other people out there that have the same kind of feeling and the same kind of problem and it turned out there there was. So um, yeah, painful problem, annoying problem, but we try to take the, the headache out of WordPress. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I feel like you hear echoes of people saying like, "Oh, the great thing about WordPress is it's so easy." And it's easy if you just like anything, if you've been doing it for a long time, sure it comes easy to you, but uh I think that I mean, maybe with 5.0 out, it's a little bit easier for new users, but uh you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that you need to know about WordPress and there are a lot of uh, unique problems because there are so many themes and plugins and ways to add content that uh, it's almost like you know being a, a mechanic. It's it's uh, you. There's not just one model of car that you can work on. There's tons of models of cars, and they all kind of work the same way, but it's a little different, and it could be frustrating. Uh, people like the reason that the service was sticky and that people 
like raved about the service was because the pain was so great. So they would get that frustrated and that upset with dealing with, I don't know, like a hack site or some conflict that they'd been working on for hours and hours or they'd go to like a marketplace to try and get the problem solved and then they'd have to send all of their credentials across to a developer. The developer would just disappear for like two or three days and then come back and the site would be worse off than when they started. So I was really stoked to see like customers that we had would say like, I love your service. Like they were using the word love, which to me was sort of a good indicator of product market fit when people rave about it and get emotional, which is cool. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I mean, one of the important things about having a product or a service, right, is um, defining the problem that you solve for your potential customer. I think I made this mistake up until very recently. I think a lot of people make the mistake where they tell you um, the what, like what is this thing, what does it do, but really you want to you want to tell the customer the the problem you're solving and with WP curve it sounds like the problem revealed itself with a vengeance and uh, WP curve solved that problem yeah and it was it was really clear like what i look for in products that become sticky is that it actually solves a problem that like elicits some emotion out of someone so you know uh, something like wordpress makes you that frustrated makes you that upset that you will pay and it, like at some levels, an inordinate amount of money to have the problem solved. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't push too hard on pricing or doing any pricing around urgency or you know severity of fix for the problem. But people will pay hundreds of dollars to have that problem solved because it just just gets people so upset. So for anyone out there that's listening, that's trying to you know hone in on a pain point to build a product or a service. Um, look for emotion, look for upset people who are complaining in forums or taking to Twitter and just ranting. Um, that's really you know, usually a good uh, signal. That is that is excellent advice and it uh, kind of flows perfectly into um, what I like to ask next, which is about research. So you mentioned with WP Curve that this was a, a frustration that you uh, experienced personally. Uh, how did you know that this is a this was a service that uh, went kind of beyond what you experienced, and you knew that it would be a, a good business model. I used some rough approximations, so I figured that I was I don't know technical enough to be dangerous, but not didn't have a high enough care factor to actually okay. figure out how to do you know learn HTML and CSS. And I yeah. tinkered for a while, but my my working assumption was that there would be at least. A thousand people in the world out there who were in a similar position to me, and that was at a level of expertise, which was like I could set up a blog, I could write posts, I could like make some like tiny updates, but anything beyond that would just be too time consuming and frustrating to learn. And I was, you know, messing around with a personal blog that didn't even generate any income. So then looking out at the market, you know, look at how many web design agencies there are. <laughs> There are already people kind of doing some level of retainer support. So before us, there were a couple of companies like Maintain, uh, WP yeah. Valet, WP Sitecare, um, a couple other folks. But what we looked to do was figure out how to have a, like a really scalable model. So to be able to serve like thousands of customers. And that came back to like how the business was built as far as having a remote team and figuring out you know processes and systems that, that enable that. Yeah, that's that's great. So um, having because I mean you know twenty four seven access is 
uh, requires a, a team around the world, right? Or at least a, a big enough team that people are willing to work uh, the night shift in some cases, right? Um, so, uh, what 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 was that like exactly? Like remote teams are are something that's becoming uh, increasingly popular, um, and it sounds like you decided to build one right from the outset. Yeah, and the interesting part is like I'm a real people person, and I love being face to face because I'm a big personality, and mm. I love bouncing ideas off people and kind of getting energized and being in a room and coming up with like ideas of how to build and grow a business. And it took me a couple of probably a couple of years to really figure that out about myself. So mm-hmm. it was it was great to build a remote team. We had probably like seventy or eighty percent of the people that were based out of the Philippines, and then we had. A guy in Costa Rica, we had a couple of folks in Africa, Hungary, wow. um, a few other countries. And what was fun about that was seeing the diversity and the, I guess, the cultural melting pot that was the Slack channel. Yeah. Uh, because you'd have all of these different cultures, all of these different points of view and personalities commingling. And it was just fun to sit back and watch this big social experiment. And part of, I guess, part of the, the things that I learned about building the remote team is that the culture, like you have to, basically triple down on the culture because you don't have the opportunity to like stand around the water cooler and have those conversations or get that, I don't know, that interpersonal connection that you have when it's a a physical thing in an office. So you need to figure out ways to recognize your people and, you know, celebrate their success and do all of those good things, but in an online fashion. So we used to goof off with stuff like if it was a team member's birthday, we'd have the entire team, you know, sing them happy birthday and record it on YouTube and then send them like a link <laughs> to a playlist and people would just lose it. Like it's just little things like that that would get people super engaged. So I think that was a huge learning. But ultimately what I found for myself is that I love to be face-to-face with people and I can help people build remote businesses and help them grow remote businesses. But my personal skill set is actually being face-to-face and, you know, I can I can just rock out all day and hang out with someone and, and jam on their business. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I, I feel the same way. Um, one of the reasons I have this podcast is because I like talking to people. I'm a very extroverted person, and I, I'm self-employed and work from home. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, it could get a little bit isolated, but, you know, having that personal connection, no matter what you do, is incredibly important. Um, and so, uh, you know, as you decided, you knew you wanted to build this highly scalable business, uh, you you created this remote team, uh, and then over the course of three years, you built it to a point where where GoDaddy came to you and said, um, "Hey, we think what you're doing here is really special, essentially, right?" And and they were interested in um, an acquisition. What kind of research did you do around that? Like, how did you how did you figure out what you had to do, or or uh, you know, if you were getting a good offer and stuff like that? Oh man, that was a crash course in mergers and acquisitions. So the first thing that I did was I bought a book off Amazon and I think I think it's like a 400 or a 500 page book and I basically like sped read that across a weekend just to get myself up to speed and familiar with you know all of the terms and all of the conditions and all of the different uh, vernacular that was used as part of working through the deal process. So I was, you know, if you've seen the scene in the Matrix where um, Neo gets this like information uploaded to his brain, yeah. I basically <laughs> did that with M and A, where I went into vacuum mode and 
try to consume as much information and as much as many blog posts and things as, as I could to get my head around like what what would be a workable deal what would a good valuation be what would make everyone really happy how would I make sure the team was taken care of and that was a you know a five month process so as soon as there was an opportunity uh, to to kind of engage on that level I dropped everything else that I was doing and worked on that deal. Uh, for that period of time, and I'm super glad that I did it because now, with the business that I run today, I have uh, I've helped a couple of folks through their acquisition and through the mm-hmm. process, help them get more money on the table, help them navigate the turmoil that comes with you know going from a small company to a big company, and all of the change that's associated with that, and also supporting founders you know through the back of that because when you sell your company, what some people don't really understand is that you kind of let go of a piece of yourself because you've put so much effort and time and love into the company that it's it's quite an emotional kind of roller coaster. And so I'm very sensitive to that now and I'm stoked that I get to kind of share that wisdom and you know pass that on in whatever form I can with the folks that I get to work with. This episode is brought to you by Pantheon. Starting a new project? Looking for a better hosting platform? Pantheon is an integrated set of tools to build, launch, and run websites. Get high-performance hosting for your WordPress sites, plus a comprehensive toolkit to supercharge your team and help you launch faster. On Pantheon, you get expert support from real developers, best-in-class security, and the most innovative technology to host and manage your websites. You can sign up a new site in minutes with a free account. You only pay when it goes live. That is my second favorite feature to Pantheon, only to the easy ability to create dev staging and live servers and push to GitHub. It's very easy to set those things up on Pantheon. So you can head over to pantheon.io today again to set up a free account pay only when it goes live. Thanks so much to Pantheon for their support of this episode and this season of How I Built It. When I was in college, this place approached me to buy a couple of like Facebook apps that I wrote. Um, and it was like modest offers, but they weren't making any, like what they offered was more than I was making. Uh, but I just couldn't, I couldn't relinquish control of this little application that I wrote. Um and I'm sure if they offered me enough, I would have said yes. But uh, it's it's just very interesting. Um, so I mean, I'm sure it's it's uh, there are a lot of emotions in that process, right? Like you're excited and nervous, and and like you said, you have to let go of of some piece of yourself when you actually make the sale. Yeah, totally. The thing that I advise people on today um, when they get into their process of like the acquisition process is basically like the deal is not done until the money is in the bank. So at any point up until you actually see the dollars in your bank account, assume that it's not going to go through. And that's not in a way where you kind of like dismiss it and say, this is not a chance. Mm-hmm. But when you start to become attached to the outcome rather than focusing on working through the process, it kind of clouds your judgment. And so I've seen this a couple of times where, you know, you future pace a little bit and you go, okay, once I have this money, then I can, you know, pay off this or buy this or do that. And it becomes a real distraction from figuring out, okay, what what do I need to put in place to make sure that the team is successful when they land? What does our integration plan look like? Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to support our people through the, you know, the turmoil of this change? All of those things. And if you kind of lose sight of that, then you shortchange yourself because 
one of the fun, like one of the weirdly fun parts of going through the acquisition is actually learning the process, like understanding, you know, how a company, how a company would like run a process to figure out, okay, who's the target company in this space? What's interesting about this company? What levers do we need to pull once we acquire them to make it like a really successful transaction? Um, and then like, what are the motivators for it as well? So one thing I kind of let founders know is that you can pretty quickly become a deer in the headlights when a big company comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, you know, we're interested in you and you get a little bit mm-hmm. starstruck and then you start to see dollar signs and you get carried away. Um, but ultimately, it's a financially motivated transaction. And I try to level people out with that, which is to remember that, hey, you're in business. It is nice to get the kudos of having a company that's interested in acquiring you. But if you are going to you know, sell something that you've poured your heart and soul into for that, that period of time, then you need to be measured and patient and yeah. disciplined and think about what you want and get really clear on the outcome that you're, that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as you're saying this, uh, I'm in the middle of buying a house and a lot of what you're saying resonates with me on that level, right? Because it is a long process. We see a house we love and then we need to put an offer on it. Um, The seller probably wants more than we're willing to pay because to them it's their home and to us we're trying to get the right deal. Uh, And and like you said, uh, the deal is not done until the money's in the bank. Uh, we uh, we're 24 days from closing as we record this. Uh, they have accepted our offer. They have accepted our um, our requests for fixes and stuff like that. But I'm not confident in saying I have the house until we sign that last document in settlement and uh, the the lender gives the money to the seller. Right? Um, I just mm-hmm. you know there's. It's looking really good right now, but I'm still nervous to say like, yes, we have a house because money's not in the bank yet. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy to get carried away and also emotionally attached to what the outcome could be and see yourself in the house and you're going to make all of these improvements and you can see the kids running around in the yard and all that good stuff. Like It's easy to walk that path and especially when it comes to an acquisition because often that's one of the biggest biggest financial transactions of someone's life, depending on the, you know, the scale of the outcome. And so emotion is absolutely going to play into it. And what I advise people of is not like, not to try and shut down or avoid the emotion, but just be like super aware of like what is driving the decisions that you're making and how you're thinking about things. And then people will come to me and I become the sounding board and they'll say, Hey, this is happening or that is happening. Like, how do I think about this? Or what should I, what should I look out for? And so I can be the you know impartial observer and say, well, given my experience, like being on the sell side of an acquisition and also like looking at some deals from the buy side of an acquisition, I can tell you that these are probably the things that are looking at. Here are some stumbling blocks that you might approach. This is probably the timeline that it will take if things go as planned. And these are some signals to look for whether you know the deal is going to be you know cold, lukewarm, or hot. So. There's a lot of different angles to look at it from, but when you're a founder and you're selling your own company, it's hard to have that level of, I don't know, awareness because you've tunnel vision on trying to get to the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And and as we get to the title question, uh, I, I want to focus more on like building an acquisition plan. Uh, but there's one more point I want to touch on here, which is uh, I suspect most founders think their business is worth more than it actually is. 
I don't, I have no data to back this up, but if GoDaddy were to come to me and say, hey, I want to buy your courses, I would think, how much money will they give me? They have so much money, but they're going to look at like the hard bottom line. How much did you make over the last two years? How much can we, how much can you expect to have made in the next five, right? Well, it depends. The answer to that question is it depends. I think the in, in short, my experience is founders' expectations are often either really on the low side of what's possible or really on the high side. Interesting. And that's and that's because they don't know what the like the comps are or the comparable sales are in their market. Mm-hmm. So a good place to figure this out or a good way to figure this out is to look at you know similar companies with a similar size and try and piece together you know data that will help you understand. Like, what is your company worth? And there's different ways to do this. So for, you know, online businesses, you can go to website brokerages, you can go to places like FEI International or FE International rather, um, Flipper, uh, Quiet Light Brokerage. Um, There's a handful of these guys that are in the business of, you know, buying and selling or transacting uh, businesses through a marketplace and they've got their own multiples. So they'll do you know, a multiple of seller discretionary earnings depending, depending on the business or they might do a multiple of revenue if it's a, a software company. And the other, the other kind of, I think the X factor in a deal is you know, sometimes revenue for a company like GoDaddy is not really a huge motivator. What they would look for is like, what's the what's the potential for scalability of the business? Mm-hmm. So when I was talking to those guys, you know, the question that I had to answer is like, what does this model look like <clears throat> with ten times the amount of customers, with fifty times the amount of customers, with a hundred times the amount of customers, and do I have confidence that I'll be able to help to take it to that level? Um, and you know, when you look at it from the buy side, as far as like the company that is acquiring and trying to un- try to understand their motivators of like what they want to do with the product, that actually helps you as a founder to understand how to best position your product for sale. So if you think it's all about, you know, dollars and cents and that's everything that they care about and what they really want is like an amazing team that they could maybe point at another product or integrate your product into like understanding what motivates them, I think is even more important than understanding what motivates you because it helps you to think about, okay, if I'm trying to maximize the outcome for the, from this exit, like what kind of language do I need to be speaking when I go into these discussions and meetings and talk to corporate development and so forth? Yeah, that that's a really great point, right? And not one that I um I would have thought, I always I kind of always look at the bottom line of things, right? But um you know if you if you along with the acquisition you're bringing an amazing team of developers that uh, your acquirer can employ in other places, or if you have just like the best community in a specific space and your acquirer is using that for a jump off, then that's that's the X, X factor, the motivator that you're talking about. Yeah, and the interesting part is like I've seen acquisitions that range from anywhere from like, you know, a couple months worth of revenue to 50 times annual revenue. Like the, the wow. spectrum is that large. And obviously like the outliers are towards the far end of that. But as far as like a, I don't know, like a software company goes, it's reasonable to expect anywhere between, I don't know, like three to eight times um, annual revenue, depending on the space, depending on how hot it is, depending on a number of different factors. But then the other elements that you take into consideration with that is, you know, as far as the deal is structured, do you get all of that money up front? Are there earnouts? Are there performance, you know, kickers? Are there clawbacks? Are there other terms of the deal that you just might not? 
be aware of or might not have visibility of. And, you know, someone could say, hey, I got, I don't know, six times annual revenue, but they're locked into a four-year earnout, and they have to hit performance bonuses to actually unlock half of that, half of that, um, half of that money. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So, so awesome. Let's, let's get into this. How, how do you build, and you could talk specifically about WP curve if you can, but if you can't, we could speak more generally. How do you build uh, an acquisition deal? An acquisition, an acquisition deal insofar as like positioning a company for sale, do you mean? Yeah. So let's just kind of talk about, um, I guess, let's say I want to position my company for an acquisition uh, so how would I get to there? And then briefly, like, what are the things that I should look for when some company approaches me or whoever about doing an about getting acquired? Sure. So the thing that I think that every founder should do is they should look if they're like even have it on their radar is to start to build connections with competitors, to start to build connections with you know the I guess the the big boys in their industry, and whether that is like you know, the senior leaders at a particular company or uh, like other folks that are involved and invested. Like it's it's really just like starting with networking and getting to know who's who in your space. Um, because that rep, like as far as reputation goes, that is a, a big driver of a deal. Because when you think about it, like GoDaddy, the company doesn't actually like buy the business. What really happens with my acquisition or any other acquisition is there's a leader within the business that has a strategy that they need to execute, and then they need to figure out how to kind of marshal their resources to make that happen. And so what they'll look for is, okay, I need to you know add this much revenue to the the top line or the bottom line by whatever time period, these are my goals, how do I go about doing that? And so what you're looking for is that, I guess, internal motivator for that individual. And I think what can what can happen is you look at like a big company and you go, oh, they're, you know, it's such a big company, I don't even know where to start. But you actually start with the individual, start with the person that runs the department or is, you know, a, a leader in the department or is even in the department to help you to start to build relationships with folks. So I think that would be the place that I would start if I was like looking to pursue an acquisition. Um, but this is there's like a long there's a long time like it's a big time investment because a bunch of different things have to kind of line up for you to even be in the crosshairs to have an acquisition. So uh, other other ways that I've seen it happen is people will build a prospectus for their company um, and they will. Have, build relationships with corporate development at each of the potential acquiring companies and say, guys, we are looking to sell. This is what you know the business looks like. These are the financials. Uh, we're seeking a you know evaluation in between this range, and we're running a process. And this is you know we've got a handful of other parties interested, and let's move forward and and see if this is something that you're interested in. And this happens a lot more than you might think. So you'll see. I've, I've seen some acquisitions happen where I know that you know the founder has been looking to get out for eighteen months, and they're trying to figure out a way to exit the business. And what will happen is an announcement will come out, and it'll be like, "Oh wow, like these guys got acquired. Like good for them." But they'd been in the background, either working with a banker or working with an advisor to figure out, okay, how can we exit the business and who are our natural acquirers, and then what do we need to have in place to to be made whole, whole from the transaction? Gotcha. That's that's super interesting. So um, I love what you said about starting with networking, right? Because it's always about it's always about that. If people don't know about you, then they're not going to buy you. 
um, reputation is incredibly important. But um, building a prospectus, right? That's almost like you know listing your. Uh, if we're going back to the house analogy that I can relate the most with, it's almost like listing your house for sale, right? Like saying, like, hey, I have a company. I want to sell it. Here's how much I think it's worth. Is anybody interested? Yeah. It's really that simple. But funny, funnily enough, when entrepreneurs either get into their first or second business, they're rarely thinking about sale. Mm-hmm. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and I always ask them like what they're building it for. Right. And they don't right. usually say I'm building it to sell or to make a bunch of money. Like we're we're, we're that like narrowly focused on, you know, getting through the next day or the next week or the me- next month or quarter that we're not usually thinking that far out. And it's not it's not that it's a bad thing, it's just a thing that I've noticed with a lot of folks that are early stage. They're going to be pouring, you know, months or years into the business, but they're not actually thinking about what kind of outcome they want from it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that that uh kind of reminds me of uh of, of business plans, right? I was uh I I wrote a business plan for a potential business. It was a business plan competition when I was in college. And the the last section that we had to fill out was like, what's your exit strategy? And I thought, why would I why would I have an exit strategy? Like I I'm building this business because I want to have this business. I wanna I wanna run it. This section implies that I'm I'm gonna sell or leave or something. Um but you know, to to that end, if people are going to be investing in your business, they want to know when are they getting their payout. Or if if you are a business owner and you grow it to a size that's either too big for you or you want to move on, then it's something that you should have in the back of your mind, right? And that 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 advice and that point of view is consistent whether or not you actually want to sell. So. You know, if you're in a business, if you're in a relationship with the co-founder, my recommendation is you always have a buy-sell agreement in place. Should anything happen, whether your personal circumstances change or something happens within your family, that each each partner knows like how you will value the business and how you will you know offload that portion of the business to either another party or the the other founder in the business. Um, it's kind of like the the way that I think about it is like signing a prenup. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say that you are expecting the thing to crash and burn, but the same thing applies to, you know, like having that level of, I would say, clarity is super helpful because it keeps everybody on the same page and the same level. And also like having an internal valuation for how you look at what you really value your company at. So if there's, and this is where other people get tripped up, there's some inbound interest. They're trying to figure out, you know, what what would a fair offer be? There's all the emotion flying around because they're feeling like really happy that a big company has reached out to them. All of this stuff is happening. And it's hard to make a rational kind of judgment on what is a reasonable multiple given their size and their scope and the market. All of those different things that kind of feed into uh figuring out what a company is actually worth. So if you have a number in the back of your head and you say, hey, I would be happy with one times annual earnings or five times or whatever that number is and an acquirer comes along and says, hey, you know, we're interested, here's a term sheet, let's like move forward. It takes a lot of pressure off and you can actually start to focus on other parts of the deal versus going, oh, did I leave too much money on the table or like now I've got to like scramble to do research to look at comparable deals or other things. So that would be my advice as far as like, you know, getting into any business, understanding like what's a reasonable multiple for it. And if someone came along and they said, here's a check for whatever it is, would I be happy with that? Because it just, it saves a lot of time. This episode is brought to you by Creator Courses. 
Do you feel confused and overwhelmed by the amount of tools to help you build websites? Are you worried that you are not using the best tools for the job? Do you feel like you ought to spend more time building and less time researching? Like you, I thought I needed to learn every tool, language, and platform under the sun to be a good web professional. And as somebody who's been doing this for 17 years, I can now tell you, you don't. Creator Courses offers short, focused courses, tutorials, and webinars to help you learn the right tools quickly. Then you don't have to waste any more time researching and you can get back to producing billable work, confident that you've made the right choice. And now you can access all of those resources by becoming a Creator Courses member. You'll be able to take any course we offer, including member-exclusive mini-courses on how to use specific tools. You'll also join a great community. And listeners can get 15% off the already low price by going to creatorcourses/build. Spend less time researching and more time building. Visit creatorcourses.com/build today. As far as the second kind of part of my question, um, let's say now somebody has approached me uh, and they are interested in an acquisition. What are the, I won't put, like, what are the top X things I should think about? Um, you know, are they just going to say straight out, we want to buy your company? Are they going to, like, court you a little bit and, and test the waters? What's what's kind of the, pro, like, the 10,000-foot the overview of the process? Yeah, it really, it really depends on the acquirer and the company, but I would say that a lot of these it's unlikely that a big company is going to come out and outright say like we're interested in buying you because they need to do their diligence and research on their side to understand like okay who are these like who are the, who are the founders what is the team like so it often starts as like let's explore a partnership um, let's see how we can work together that's probably like the introductory phase and when that happens, it's unlikely that you're the only person that's being reached out to. So you can get a little bit starstruck and feel like you're, you know, Cinderella going off to the ball or whatever else. But often, oftentimes, there's five, seven, ten other companies that are having the same conversation with the company. And so, as you think about that, like my advice to people is to really try and understand like what the motivation is for getting the deal done. So really hone in on like why does the company care? Why are they pursuing us? What does it mean to their business? And understand like what success is going to look like for them. So instead of worrying about all the things that you want and you care about, actually try and like dig into questioning, you know, how would this look if you know this was to come off? What what's the what's the business benefit of pursuing this acquisition? How big do we think we can grow that business? And the reason that, that matters is because it gives you something to anchor towards as far as you know what the value of the company is going to be in the eyes of the uh, the acquirer. So assuming that you pass that stage and that dance of like, hey, let's maybe partner. Okay, it looks like there's something more here we can explore. Then remember that if you are going down that path on the buy side of the deal from the acquirer's point of view, they have a model in place. They know what they're willing to pay. They've got a range which they will work within. And it's not like a, I don't know, it's not a guessing game. They have they have a, a you know a spectrum and there's a like a like the the first offer is never gonna be the offer that you should take. Um, <laughs> and that takes a little bit of courage because you know 
you you see a big a big number on the screen and then you go wow like I'm going to say no to that am I crazy uh, but yeah. that's just that's just how negotiation works and if you're not comfortable having that conversation then that's the time to you know engage a professional whether it's someone that works on on deals or is a commercial banker to be able to go in and negotiate on your behalf so as far as it gets it goes getting into the deal and looking at these different I don't know, elements. There is the courting. There is like whether there's actually going to be an offer in between some of that. There's going to be like, let's talk about, you know, some of the history of the business. I advise people not to give away all of their information until you actually have a term sheet and you actually have, you know, you're in the process of due diligence. This is another common mistake that founders make. I've seen prospectuses that people have put together, which are, you know, really long and detailed and give away all of the secret source of the business. And unfortunately, there are some companies out there who will kind of, they will do, it's, it's basically like information gathering. Right. So they will say, hey, we're interested in partnering or we're interested in acquisition. They'll get you really hot and bothered and like get to like learn about the ins and outs of your business. And then it'll like it'll immediately go off the boil and you'll be like, huh, that's kind of weird. Um, and we experienced that as well. Like I went through that with another company and um, I've, I've seen that happen and it's a thing. So you also like keep your keep your eyes on the prize and just remember that you know take it is a dance it is a slow dance uh, entrepreneurs like try to force things and push things really quickly but yeah. um, as far as it goes like be patient don't expect something to happen and as you kind of work through it just kind of go slowly and move slowly and be patient and it's hard because you know when there's millions of dollars on the table you're you've got dollar signs in your eyes um, it's hard to hard to go slow. Yeah, right. You get really excited, right? But uh, um, you know, don't give it don't give it all away on the first date, I guess. Um, and you know, the first offer should never be the one you take. I think that's really important for people to hear because even though it may look like a gigantic number to you, they are probably giving you the lower end of their range, right? Because not because they're trying to lowball you or anything, but their job is to. Um, to to make this as profitable as possible for them, uh, exactly. just again, just like buying a house, I'm not, I'm never going to go in and ask for asking price right off the bat, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to figure out what are other homes assessing for, uh, and I'm going to make a reasonable offer based on that. And then if the seller comes back and says, you know, we think we can get this much, then we negotiate. But it is, it it can be really hard if you really want something. And the, the caveat, and there's a, like I, I never work in absolute. So the caveat to that is if you've got a multiple in mind, and then the offer comes in way over multiple of like what you're expecting, mm-hmm. then just get on with it. Like that's the that's the exception to that rule. And I don't know that that often happens, but you know, like the goal here, if you are like really serious about the acquisition, is to sell the company. So if you get what you need, you can move forward. Like that's not a, a stumbling block. But I would say that the you know, the vast majority of the time those early those early kind of offers are bottom finders where it's, right. you know, enough to enough to get you interested, but then you're like, oh, okay, like that's not really going to work out. So let's revisit and we'll go back and forward with a couple of counter offers on each side. Right. And I mean, the other thing there is that if they come in with a lower price, now they're anchoring you to that lower price, right? So it seems like, well, I guess anything more than that is a steal for me. But just, um, you know, keep those are things that you should keep in mind. And, and maybe it is worth it to engage a neutral, thir- not neutral, but a an objective third party to help you work through that stuff. Because it, it's, especially, you know, when, when they're offering a number that you've, Never seen in your life before, then it it could be 
uh, very hard to stay objective. It's absolutely next. It's not impossible to stay objective, but you've got to be extremely disciplined, and you will want to move things quickly because you'll create you'll create your own sense of urgency because you'll be like, okay, the, like the door is closing. Um, right. And this is another thing that happens in a lot of, like I've seen it happen in a lot of deals, which is pacing. So there's pacing that happens where there's certain phases of the process where things will speed up or slow down. And you know, ultimately, once you get past a certain phase, which is maybe like, you know, a term sheet getting into diligence that is exclusive, and there's you know certain terms around uh, exclusivity, and you can't like shop your company anywhere else according to the, the terms of the, um, the I don't know the term sheet or whatever else is in place. Then you are basically like beholden to the process for that window of time, and so that. That creates like some, in, I guess, some intrinsic urgency in getting the actual deal done, but you have nowhere else to turn because you have committed to not shopping the company anywhere else, so you can stay focused on the deal. So I think the point of all of this is there is a lot of nuance to the process. It is a dance. Um, it is hard to be patient when you're an entrepreneur, and if you, you know, if you get into this process and you feel like you're going to get too excited or get too carried away. Find someone that's been down that path before. Find a banker. Find a coach. Find an advisor. Find someone that's had their company acquired, and you know, engage them and ask them questions. Because when it comes to this, it, again, it's just another business process. It's like a sales process or a marketing process. It's something that you can learn. It's not a dark art that you know only certain few people are gifted with. I, I love that. Um... This is definitely something that can be learned, and so uh, we are we are slightly over time. But I do want to ask you one more question before we wrap up, um, and that's aside from the money side of a, an acquisition, what are other things that you should look for? You know, I assume that um, stuff like helping with the the transition from your team to into the bigger company. Do you have to stay on for a certain amount of time? Are there other things that you should think about? Um, other concessions you might have to make as far as an acquisition outside of money. It's it depends it depends on the individual. So um, a lot of acquisitions will come with strings attached, which will be you know there's a minute like they'll uh, you'll be uh, kind of golden handcuffed into a very I don't know a very like attractive looking offer based on a period of, like staying on with the company for a period of time. And so that's a really hard thing for an entrepreneur to stomach because they go from being the master and commander to then working in a in a company that's got a completely different culture and a completely different way of doing things. So that is totally a consideration and it depends on the phase of your life. Like I know entrepreneurs that are have been happy to sell and happy to go and take a desk job because they've been grinding for five to seven years and they just feel like that's a break. Like that's kind of a holiday from working 18 hours a day or whatever crazy stuff they've been doing. So that's one thing I think also remembering that like once once the deal is actually done and the money comes and hits the bank or like whatever the timing of the transaction is like that's kind of where the work begins so yep you've sold your company now it's on you to go and make it successful at scale um, that was something that I learned post acquisition which was that I you know, the first 18 months of WP Curve, I was super involved and super active. I scaled myself out of the business in the second kind of like 12 months. And then, you know, I came back around and got involved in the deal. And then post acquisition, getting into GoDaddy, I had to be like all hands on deck to get the business back up and built because obviously I wanted it to be successful and not fail. 
And so that's also like a little bit of risk mitigation for the acquiring company, which is to say that the entrepreneur wants their company to be successful and they don't want it to crash and burn because that's what happens with a lot of acquisitions. They don't integrate well, you know, the product gets shuttered, uh, the fa- like the, the entrepreneur will leave. Um, so for someone like me, I had to really commit to relaunching the product, figuring out how to scale it, figuring out how to sell it in a completely different space. And that that like I learned a whole lot. I learned just as much, you know, before the acquisition as I did after the acquisition, because that's where I kind of truly learned how to scale. So I think that probably the summary of all of that is take it as a learning experience and go into it with eyes open and look at it as ha- like how you can learn rather than what's different. And then I think you'll be in good stead. Yeah, that's I that's great advice. Um and it reminded me of kind of two competing somewhat public, well, very public acquisitions, right, uh, as far as success and failure. Uh, Disney and their acquisition of both Pixar and Marvel has been very successful. Um, but Flickr, every acquisition, it seemed, it, it, it tends to get worse off. Um, mm-hmm. And one that really got me was Lala. It was, I don't know if you remember Lala. It was like this uh, online, like web-based music streaming service where you basically paid like 10 buck, uh, 10 cents per play or you can become a member and Apple bought it and I'm like this is great they're going to just rebrand it as iTunes in the cloud or whatever uh, and they just shuttered it it was like basically an aqua hire and I was really bummed about that and that happens there's I think one happened with maybe it was Google or Apple there was a calendar app I think it was called Sunrise and yeah. people were people Microsoft. were cr- yeah, people were crazy about how cool this this app was, and then it just went nowhere and it disappeared. And I think it got shuttered as well. So it does happen; like it's totally a thing. But this is what I mean about the strategy. Like, you, if you don't understand the underlying reason that you're being bought, that can totally happen. Like, that can totally, totally happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, you just gave us tons of great advice, but I always need to ask my favorite question, which is, do you have any trade secrets for us? Like, what's this one, what's this overarching lesson maybe that you've learned uh, in, in this whole process? I would say that doing work that you would do for free is probably a good litmus test to see if like, that's something that you would want to continue to do and whether you're going to be successful with something. So I found myself coaching entrepreneurs for free in like 2015 just because I loved it. And so this was like slapping me in the face the whole way along, uh, you know, the, the, the WP curve path. And it's because I, like it filled me up. I really enjoyed helping people. And so I think, yeah, if you can, if you can anchor into that and figure out what it, like, figure out, figure out what it is that you love and then how to get paid for it, uh, you probably won't feel like you do any work. Like I actually don't feel like I do any work because I love the work that I do so much. And I don't know too many people that can say that, especially folks in office jobs who have to, you know, file their TPS reports or do whatever other stuff <laughs> they need to do. Um, meanwhile, I'm like, you know, hanging out, chatting to you, and talking about entrepreneurship and trying to help people. And I love it. So that's probably my trade secret, which is like anchor into the things that you truly love and enjoy, and then. You know that you will reap the rewards if you just keep showing up day after day. Ah, uh, that is excellent advice. Uh, I can totally vouch for that because when I first started making websites, I could not believe that people would just pay me to do something that I enjoyed doing, like a hobby. Right. So, yeah. Um, fantastic advice, uh, Alex. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, where can people find you? 
Yeah, they can go over to my site. It's productize.co. Um, if you just load up the site, jump on my mailing list, um, and I've got a couple different like resources depending on the stage and the scale of your business, whether you're starting out or you're all the way down the pathway, uh, all the way down the path of potentially being acquired. Um, I've got something that I can help you with, and it's all free content. So get over to productize.co and check it out. Awesome. I will link that and a lot of the things that we talked about in the show notes today over at howibuilt.it. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hey, great to be here. And I've got to give Jacqueline a shout out for making this connection happen. She is an awesome person. She is at podreacher.com and I love her work. So I just had to make that connection too. Awesome. Thank you so much for shouting that out. Jacqueline is also going to be a guest on this show. So be sure to look out for her episode. Thanks so much to Alex for joining us today. I really liked his story because it is different from the stuff that we normally talk about. Uh, You know, we usually talk about building plugins or a small business. He built up one of maybe the first WordPress maintenance companies and then sold it to one of the biggest hosting companies in the world. And he decided to take what he knows and teach it to all of us. Uh, His trade secrets, I think, are very unique uh, because, uh, you know, of the uniqueness of him being on the show, especially the understand why you're being bought part, right? You always want to know what motivates someone to act uh, the way they're acting. And the, the more you can understand about why somebody wants to acquire your company, whether it's for you and your specific talent or the brand you built will help you uh, come to a better agreement that works for both you and the potential buyer. So uh, my question of the week for you is, would you ever consider selling your business? Let me know by emailing me joe at casabona.org or via Twitter at jcasabona. Thanks so much to this week's sponsors, Pantheon, Ahoy, and Creator Courses. They make this podcast happen. And of course, thanks so much to you for listening. If you liked this episode, share it with somebody. Maybe they're going through an acquisition process right now and Alex's advice can help. So thanks again so much for listening. And until next time, get out there and build something.